everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. When we think about Aesop's fables, we tend to imagine stories with animal characters. And while this does make up the bulk of the tales recorded, there are stories that center around humans, and even feature gods. Today we'll read a few of them as we take a deeper look at Aesop's humans. <laughs> All right, so this will be our last episode where we're sort of examining um, one subset of, of Aesop's fables. Yes. And um, we've looked at an animal each week so far. Now we're going to look at the stories that have um, human characters. Um, they're definitely no less interesting. No, not at all. And, and it's just been so much fun going back to Aesop. Uh, next week we'll talk about who Aesop was and that kind of thing to culminate it. But, but rereading them has been refreshing, and and some of them I remember, and some of them I just don't. And mm-hmm. so to be able to talk about them um, in the context of current life is is it's been very um, inspirational. Yeah, I hope it has been for the listeners too, because um, it's it's like you're saying. Uh, I I think I talked about it maybe the first week. Um, you know, I remember reading all of these when I was 19 or 20. And I think the benefit of the the format of the short tale is that it's it's easily recollected. You know, we we start talking about these fables and then other ones will pop right into my head, you know, and, and it's easy to remember those those short, you know, very pertinent um tales about things. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and then is. uh like you said, next week we'll we'll look at um Aesop, you know, as a, a broad overview. And uh, after that, we'll have our 100th episode. So <laughs> I'm going to keep plugging it, keep so, plugging it. <laughs> so that people will tune in. But uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So um, the first tale that we have is the mythic folk Hercules and the Wagoneer. Mm-hmm. As a Wagoneer was driving his wagon through a miry lane, the wheels stuck fast in the clay and the horses could get on no further. The man dropped on his knees and began praying to Hercules with all his might to come help him. Lazy fellow, said Hercules, get up and stir yourself. Whip your horses stoutly and put your shoulder to the wheel. If you want my help then, you shall have it. So the moral of this one, God's help those who help themselves, right? So this guy, you know, he's driving, he gets stuck. And then um, rather than wasting any time getting himself unstuck, he just starts asking for help. (laughs) (laughs) And Hercules says, well, yeah, I'd be willing to help you out if you were at least making some effort to help yourself, but you're not. I was thinking of instead of uh, praying to uh, a god, I was uh, when I read that getting ready for today, I started laughing because. I was in so many situations where I ended up calling my dad, <clears throat> you know, and, and, and he'd come and he'd say, well, did you do this? Did you do that? Did you do it? And some of them I had, and some of them I hadn't thought of, but there was the first inclination. I'm in a mess. I look things over. I try something. It doesn't work. Call dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Hercules sort of stands in. Yeah. And there's an interesting, I, you know, I think that there's an interesting progression to human learning right because i think that it's you know early on learning anything it's almost necessary to to call for hercules right away right 
when when you're first learning something, you don't have the experience, you don't have the knowledge, and so you have to have the mentor. You have to have somebody that's going to come in and help you. Yeah. And then towards the middle part of of your learning or your training, um, and I see this time and time again, being somebody who um, hires and trains um, individuals, right? Mm-hmm. There comes a point where um, I always tell like my shift supervisors, like, le- you know, we're going to leave this person alone today um, because they can do it, but they don't know they can do it yet, right? Mm-hmm. So they need to learn that they can. And I think that we, we all reach that point. We can all think of a time like yes. like you calling on your dad, right? Where, you know, you've, you've probably learned quite a bit about mechanics. Um, but you're just sort of flustered because something happens. So you think of the first two or three things that are obvious. And then after that, you say, well, I don't know. You know, right. I, I don't know what it is. I can't fix it. So I need help. Um, but the fact is, if your dad doesn't pick up the phone or whatever the case may be, and you think it out a couple more minutes, you, you might you be able might to come get up with there. The yeah, that, that, that's true. And this is, I, I think, side note, this is one of the many ways in which your education is is spilling into making your workplace better because as a teacher even though you don't bear the title but you know you are you you've you're determining which person needs to be left alone today which person needs to be talked with and and how you talk to them i mean you know hercules i'm not so into hercules as pedagogy it's right like, yeah. <laughs> just whip the creature yeah. <laughs> okay and don't bother me i'll yeah. take two aspirin and call me tomorrow uh, but but it it does it applies across the spectrum. I'm, I'm thinking of my granddaughter, who, who now more often than not, to me, uh, will say when I start to do something with her, she'll say, "No, no, Grandpa, I do it myself. Hmm. Uh, I do everything myself." Well, that no, that's you know that's the the overexpansive, but. Um, working on a a block tower and used to want help with that, and then now it's just I'm making this nice. Do you want this part? Nope, don't need that. Uh, you know, these little magnetic, uh, they're not really blocks, they're, they're chips. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, well, I need triangle. What kind of triangle do you need? Isosceles. Okay. So, <laughs> I'm going, wow, okay, good for you. <laughs> but, but to know what your design is, even if it's rough, even if it's, you know, very, very little kid, um, and to be able to say, give the space and let them do it. And if it falls apart, and they want to stay with it, they can. I think there's some of that in here. Yeah, I think that we should do a whole episode sometime on failure. Because failure is a very interesting topic. And I think that the attitudes of your three-year-old granddaughter and the attitudes of um, full-grown people in a work environment and how they're um, opposed to one another demonstrates how powerful uh, a factor failure is in how we progress throughout life, right? Because children... That's a universal stage of children between the ages of three and six. If yes. you've done any child psychology or any child pedagogy classes, you'll you'll see, you know, that age frame is all about pushing the boundaries and about separating yourself from parents and doing things on your own. And there is this overconfidence, this this thought that you can do it and you don't need help. And I mean, really, it lasts throughout your teenage years, and mm-hmm. you know, but at some point. There's, there's, there's generally something, a failure of some kind that will knock that wind out of your sails. And yep. then rather than returning to a neutral place of, oh, okay, well, I didn't have the training or I didn't have the skills or I made a mistake or whatever. 
I think a lot of people tend to go backwards straight and into the belly of the whale. Yes, there's an. Uh, I can't do anything. I would have, you know, that that whole. Yeah, we need to do this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think agree. that that would be fascinating. But yeah, so I, you know, Hercules and the Wagoneer, right? The the moral there, you know, help yourself before you you reach out to others. Yeah, and and and, and you don't necessarily usually think of. Hercules being appealed to. Hercules is the guy cleaning the Aegean stables you know, the, the, and, and and killing the 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 Nemean lion and all of those things. No, he's he's just out there being consultant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. The next one we have is um, Mercury and the Sculptor. Right now, Mer- Mer- should take a just a moment to say that Mercury was. Uh, some people recognize it from a Disney film as Mercury being the the, the you know wonky messenger god but mercury is a god of fertility thievery swiftness <laughs> there are a lot of things ascribed to mercury in fact mercury was neil gaiman pointed this out recently um, mercury was uh, the equivalent of odin hmm. in in norse myth when the romans were carried mercury was almost king of the gods sometimes that's really interesting because um you don't think of mercury in that capacity if you you're not really familiar with no so mercury in the sculpture Mercury once determined to learn in what esteem he was held among mortals. For this purpose, he assumed the character of a man and visited in this disguise a sculptor's studio. Having looked at various statues, he demanded the price of two figures, of Jupiter and Juno. When the sum at which they were valued was named, he pointed to a figure of himself, saying to the sculptor, you will certainly want much more for this, as it is it is the statue of the messenger of the gods and author of all your gain. And the sculptor replied, well, if you will buy these, I'll fling you that into the bargain. <laughs> <laughs> buy two, get one free. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, my version doesn't have an implied, uh, 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 an explicit moral that goes with that. Yeah, and that's why it's interesting because when I was reading it um, in a few different places online, and we should say um, there are a lot of different versions of these fables, and oh, they yes. vary quite widely. Most of mine are from the, um, I think, the JD, JDD or JBD collection. Yeah. Um, I really like the way they put them. Um, but some of them are, I mean, some of these fables are, are two sentences long and then the same fable will be two paragraphs long. So there's a lot of, you know, different, different versions. My so. version is, um, Isaac Beshevis Singer, um, uh, who is a, a, an incredible story writer, um, who's, who's probably some people would know best. Um, his story uh, became, one of his stories became the Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, okay. Musical. So he's he's approaching it from a very storyteller orientation, mm-hmm. and usually not even putting the morals in, which which I favor. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but, so yeah, the the moral that they have online in other sources is don't overvalue yourself, right? <laughs> which is that really what you want to be telling people? I you know we I think that this goes back to last week, right? Looking at um, Aesop's donkey, right? All of the stories tend to be about know your place, right? Know, mm-hmm. you know, do what you're good at and these sorts yep. of things. Um, so, and I think Mercury's tale is a little bit different. Like the moral, that moral is very abrasive, um, but it might be applicable in this context, right? Mercury's going in there with perhaps an inflated sense of uh, self-value, right? 
Like, oh, I'm the messenger of the gods. Oh, do gods really even need a messenger? Couldn't they? <laughs> you know, I feel like they could just deliver messages. When they get themselves. the internet, they don't need Mercury. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, get I, Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. But he's also the god of commerce and, and, and trade. And so that being the case, then there might also be an element of there's this wonderful humanity because the gods are human in mm. many ways. Uh, but <laughs> they all are self uh, focused at times. They all have a narcissistic element. So yeah, they say, hey, look at that handsome statue. And, and the sculpture is, uh, it's, this is a marvelous story about artists. Artists don't necessarily do their work primarily for financial gain. Some artists do sell their work so that they can put bread in, on the table. But they're still working at craft. Once they forget craft and just start generating stuff that people want, there's a, there's something that's lost. Mm. And, and I think that in this, in the sculptor's case, the sculptor's not particularly necessarily very pleased with the piece of Mercury, but oh, okay, I'll toss it in. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Knowing that Mercury is the god of commerce adds this, um, irony to the story, right? Because he says to the, to the sculptor, Oh, surely this statue is worth much more because he's, you know, the purpose of all your bounty, right? The commerce side of it. And then that Mm. very element of commerce, um, is sort of turned against him when he says, well, I'll throw them in for free if you buy these other two, you know? I love these kind of stories because yeah, exactly. There's, there's, um, it could almost it's, be in a sitcom. It's kind of slapstick. Kind of, you know? <laughs> Aesop is sitcom. This would be a set of one-offs. I think it's interesting when the gods go undercover. And this happens in many, many traditions. It certainly happens in Norse myth. Odin Odin was always walking around with a, with a great big hat and a robe, sort of like the Gandalf kind of figure. Well, you got to be careful because when you go in someplace, you're trying to test humans. You're, t- you're testing the water. These were the earliest pollsters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the mer- Mercury pollster is going in. Well, if you hear something you don't like, the, the great thing is that Mercury doesn't, in the story at least, whip off his disguise and say, I'm blasting you with my Mercury power because, no. Right. He's just, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean... D- this is uh, a trope that appeals to humans, right? There's a TV show, Undercover Boss, right? Where the CEOs, you know, not quite gods, but capitalism has essentially almost elevated them to this status. You know, go undercover and and pretend that they're low low workers and, you know, get to know the people and then at the end reveal themselves. Um, and just this. seeing, right? Um, <laughs> at my job, we, we hired a new guy for a position and one of our workers thought that he was he was an undercover boss and watching the way that she treated him, um, you know, was, was enlightening. Right. So yeah, the, this idea of, um, of the gods going undercover and, and what it, what it means is, is kind of funny. This is meaningless, but I, this thing I'm about to say, but now you've given me, you've explained something that's way back. Uh, I didn't know about undercover boss. But there was an episode of Saturday Night Live where Kylo Ren is is being one of the, oh, yeah, yeah. the soldiers. That's what it is. It's a spoof that's on setting that. up yes. under. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That works. So, yeah, it's funny. Um, and and it makes me think. You know, as we start to read these stories with the gods in it, Hercules and Mercury and stuff. Yeah. I can't help 
but sort of correlate these gods with some of the animals that we've examined. Like I think of Mercury, I think this is a fox. It's a fox. Yes. You think of Hercules, you think this might this might be a lion or it might be, you know. And some of the gods are shape changers. Yeah, yeah. Loki was a shape changer. Right. And 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 so, you know, Loki was androgynous. Gaiman was pointing this out recently too. It'd be male, female, uh, a mare. <laughs> a crocodile. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You watch the TV show. <laughs> All right. The next one we have is The Old Man and Death. I, I like this one. Hmm. A poor and toil worn peasant, bent with years and groaning beneath the weight of heavy firewood which he carried, saw it weary and sore footed on a long and dusty road to gain his distant cottage. Unable to bear the weight of his burden any longer, he let it fall by the roadside, and sitting down upon it, lamented his hard fate. What pleasure had he known since first he drew breath in this sad world? From dawn to dusk, one round of ill-requited toil. At home, empty cupboards, a discontented wife, and disobedient children. (laughs) He called on death to free him from his troubles. At once the king of terrors stood before him and asked him what he wanted. Awed at the ghastly presence, the old fellow stammering said, It was nothing more than to have helped me once more upon my shoulders the bundle of sticks which he had let fall. (laughs) It's a great story. I I love that story. And this is one that is much longer in the version that I read than in other versions. Some of them are are very short. But I like all the details that it added in there. Because empty cupboards and a discontented wife and disobedient children. The other ones don't really mention that. But it gives, it sort of fleshes out this, this idea of, you know, this guy that has gone to work, you know, he was nine to five every day. And he's just beat down and he doesn't see, you know, anything. What What's the purpose of it all? So he says, man, I would wish I was dead so that I could be free of these troubles. Yeah. But then when confronted with it, um, he says, oh, can you help me put these sticks <laughs> put back, back on back? I'll get back to work. And I bet he worked with 10 times the vigor that he had before that, right? It's a variant of the story we talked about last week with, with, the, with the donkey. Yeah. Somebody help me. Uh, just take a few of my burden and I'll be fine. And then he dies. In in this case, sure, I'll come. I'll take you now. So, but it's also fascinating because your version, <clears throat> with those details that you like, is is fascinating. This is an old man. Well, you know, we know if he that- has disobedient children at home. <laughs> how old could he be? Are the kids fifty? I mean, are they? You know, <laughs> are you know? And 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 a lot of people think people who are 40 or old uh, in our day. And no, people didn't all die at, you know, 25 or 30 back then. Mm-hmm. People like to say, oh, everyone was shorter back then. Everybody just died. No. If you look at the years are ascribed to some of these folks, they live 70, 80 years. Uh, so what is it about being an old man that's important to the story? Mm-hmm. So I think also about the old man and the sea, the, the yeah. Hemingway story, of that, that doesn't really come out so much oh oh, he's beset all right he's he's old he's tired he wants to lay down his burden oh no i don't and he gets renewed vigor (laughs) he's re-inspired so what is the moral listed with that so the moral listed with this one is be careful what you wish for yes okay (laughs) (laughs) which seems applicable um but yeah that that is a really fascinating question why is being old a central um point of emphasis in the story Unless i think that i think that it has to do with um the experience right i think that if we knew he was a young man we'd say 
well, what this, you know, this guy, he didn't actually put up with his burden for very long. Right. So what does he have to be, you know, I think that it it lends a little bit of credibility to him um, to say that he was old. He has some years. Yeah. So he's been doing this a long time. And so um, maybe perhaps he was justified in that attitude, you know, saying, you know, I'm, I'm old, my body is tired and, and broken and, you know, I've just done. And to say that even in that case, right, even if you are at the end of life and you're, you're really beaten down and broken, it's still better to be alive than to, to be the alternative. Yeah. yeah I, I think, I, I think that that's a well-stated moral that would be on equal basis with the one that's given it also puts me in mind of this uh, this very interesting i hadn't thought of this in some time um some uh, many years back my my father had a situation where he had to go and have um heart surgery and stents put in and 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 he was doing fine afterward but in immediately after the surgery there well after the recovery there was a workshop the nurses were designated nurses were given about diet and about life changes. And so there were older people in this workshop. My, my mom and I sat in with dad and there were, there was the youngest was a man who was about 40. I think he identified as 40, 42. And he was angry and his wife was with him and she looked absolutely worn out. And they said, you should try to give up or severely reduce meat and, and these kind of things. We're talking about dietary. Don't don't just go back to doing the same thing. And he said in front of the whole group, he said, "Fine, I'm I'm tired of all this. If I can't have hamburgers, I just let me die." And 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 the wife looked. She had looked so haggard, and she suddenly sparked up and she got really angry with him. And she said, "Is that what you want?" We can leave now. You can stay here. The kids and I will go home. You want to have your hamburgers and kill yourself. We'll figure it out. Mm. He needed a kick in the pants. I think she gave it to him. But this story comes to mind with that. Yeah. And again, we're it's less about morals and more about raising these philosophical questions. Yeah. And I yeah. think that the question that, that all people must face, right, is how to balance that, how to balance um, living in moderation and and having a a long full life with enjoying the things that are in life right and you know what's what's the right and wrong answer it's hard to say it's hard to pass that judgment for other people um but it does seem like there's certain cases where you say listen this person is um these things that they're enjoying seem you know a hamburger how trivial is a hamburger if you could, would you, would you trade a hamburger for another 20, 30, 40 years of life? Right. It seems like that's, <laughs> and that's, a, a that is the philosophical trait. question. That is a, a fascinating trade. And of course there are people who are in fellow human beings who are in such pain constantly or agony that, that if, that they think, is this really worth it? You, you can't help but empathize under tears that well it's not for me to say mm-hmm. but i understand why you would ask that question but if you're hauling a bunch of stuff up a hill or down the road and you just say oh okay, i'm tired well take a break yeah yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> right <laughs> don't don't just invite death unless he didn't really be- and then there's the other element of this it's not really believing that that would happen yeah so this is the the person just tossing off words 
But when you toss off words, there's a the, 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 if we had to put another moral with it is words mean something mm. and they have consequences. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, um, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a really difficult thing to, to move your head around, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, like, like we were saying, there's that trade off, you know, the pleasure versus the so short lifespan yeah. or, um, you know, the other, the other end of it. But then I think within there, um, you know, sometimes those healthy lifestyle choices, right? It's a frame of reference sort of thing, right? There is something um, to being hungry or to eating something, you know, that you may not like a, a vegetable or something or to sleeping outside on the ground that, okay, maybe this is not something that you want to do all the time. But it gives you a, a, sh- a frame of reference. It's like death appearing before you and saying, yes. listen, you, you're ungrateful for the things that you do have, right? And so, um, you know, those. I think those experiences are very valuable and, and they're ones that we don't have in modern life very often, right? No, but but we could we could have looked at, do you have a, <clears throat> something happens on the highway and you narrowly miss somebody who's passing another car coming at you. Do you just keep driving along as if you're in video game? Do you, do you, do you find a moment to stop and say, if that's where I ended, hmm. oh, that means the rest of this time is just icing on the cake and maybe I better appreciate it. I, I think you're right. I don't think necessarily that they were, there's such a hurry all the time. People don't stop and think about what they're actually contemplating. And then of course, I think, Perhaps even the biggest element of this is going to be um, somebody's belief in the afterlife, right? Mm-hmm. What if you if you believe that once you de- you're dead, that's it, that's the end? You might act differently than if you believed you were going to a paradise, or you were going to hell, or yeah. you were going to be reincarnated, or whatever your conception of uh, post life um, experiences is going to play heavily into. Your acceptance of death, I think. And at Aesop's, yeah, that's a good point. In Aesop's time, you know, the the idea, the idea of in the Roman pantheon and theology was that you went to Hades. Uh, everyone who dies goes to Hades, and then uh, and then you're a sort of a, a wraith, a pallid spirit. You're cold. You're thirsty, and you're just Walking around empty. Hmm. I, I think that's a much worse version than any. <laughs> yeah. So, so if the old man didn't really believe in all that, he says this, and then suddenly he sees death, then then one assumes he also realizes the potential reality of the rest of that accrued meaning in the stories. And okay, <laughs> put those sticks back on my back. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. we mentioned. I think we were talking about it maybe a month or so ago, uh, like near death experiences and how yeah. they, they change people, you know, and whether or not there's any reality to the things they experienced, or it's just a, a trick of biology and then the, what it's perceiving to be the last moments yep. of life, the, uh, outcome and the impact on somebody is the same. It's okay. dramatic. It's profound. Yeah. All right. The next one we have is the image of mercury and the carpenter. Yep. Back to mercury. <laughs> A very poor man, a carpenter by trade, had a wooden image of Mercury, before which he made offerings day by day 
and begged the idol to make him rich. But in spite of his entreaties, he became poorer and poorer. At last, being very angry, he took his image down from its pedestal and dashed it against the wall. When its head was knocked off, out came a stream of gold, which the carpenter quickly picked up and said, Well, I think thou art altogether contradictory and unreasonable. For when I paid you honor, I reaped no benefits. But now that I maltreat you, I am loaded with an abundance of riches. This one is fascinating, and I can't believe that it made the cut. Because (laughs) I could not find any explicitly stated moral. And what the story seems to imply um, does not seem to be something that you would want to encourage in a populace, in an organized society, which is essentially, um, from what I'm gathering, is... it, it's almost anti-reverential to the gods. It, it is. It it is. Now, I think it, Mercury. We have to keep in mind that Mercury was also a trickster. Thus, the Fox Association made earlier the god of thievery. Hmm. So it's not just this pleasant, you know, USPS right, yeah. <laughs> person uh, walking around and and. When we get past the simplicity of that, then Mercury may be seeing a person who already has the potential for avarice and is helping him down the road to therefore be punished in the afterlife. But in the afterlife, everyone is just sort of ghostly. And so, but there are different punishments that different figures go through as ghosts mm-hmm. uh, in Hades. Uh, thus, we have Tantalus and and uh, Sisyphus and so on. Yeah, I think the reason it's it's sort of hard to digest from a Western perspective is because I think monotheistic religions sort of stripped that characteristic, right? In monotheistic re- religions, it's good and evil, right? And so God has only good characteristics. Mm. In pantheistic um, religions, the gods can tend to um, embody several different characteristics, some of which are good, some of which may be evil, some of which may be just a trickster, right? A trickster. Is being a trickster good or bad? There's really not a designation for that. I'm, uh, okay, and so now, now I'm going to say, but but if we look really, you know, we're getting on, a, a, that's an important tangent, it's related to the theme. Uh, I would counter that if you take the all of the books of the Bible, together, that you have a wildly uh, complicated uh, tapestry of various elements of God, all of which are not palatable, nice, or good. Mm. Uh, now, I know I'm putting people off by saying this, but, I, but, but bear with me for a minute. Okay, so if people do the wrong thing and they displease God, God can commit planetary genocide mm. not nice <laughs> okay um uh, or or god can can trick you oh let's have you take your son and prove to me that your that your faith is is strong and go sacrifice your son no stop i didn't mean it you know there yeah. there's the element of the trickster in there i i think that that it's it's certainly not the same as a pantheistic yeah, I guess the question would be um, from like a historical, you know, theological viewpoint, like not so much our interpretation of them now, because I think 
we know how the modern church is interpreting these stories, especially particularly the Old Testament, yes. right? It's saying that, okay, well, God is always approaching it from a good and right standpoint, and he's just, he's testing humans, or um, it, he's preparing something that is going to be repre- a representation of, of Jesus down in the New Testament, whatever the case may be, right? Yeah, yeah. But during the writings, I think that the important thing is, what was the intent of God in the writings? Right? Yes, was, in was that it, story. Right. So, so was with Jacob and Isaac, right? Was was he intending to be a trickster when he was trying to get, or Abraham, Abraham, Abraham trying to get yeah. Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Or was he testing him from a good noble spot to see Abraham's heart? But if God is omniscient, wouldn't he know Abraham's heart before you giving see, him to yeah, Isaac? That's what I'm saying. Really, 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 really a lot of questions. I, I, I don't, I, I, I don't in the least. And uh, I'm not mocking the story, but I think if we take this as story, a sacred story or a story, either way, it's not as simple as it seems. Mm. Uh, if we look at the character of 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 God, and and, and the the interpretation of the intent does change the character, right? Because I think being a trickster um, implies, like in the story that you just read with Mercury. There's a good chance that if Mercury is a trickster, right? When the carpenter breaks the head off the statue, Mercury laughs. Hmm. I don't think God laughed when he said, just kidding, don't sacrifice Isaac. Here's a ram, no. right? So I don't know if it's, I'm not sure, right? And that's no, where I, there's this confusion. Is it? Is that just our modern interpretation and the spin that we put on the scriptures? Or was in the intent of the writing, um, what, what was the intent? You know, it's hard to uh, say. It's hard to say. And I'll also... Uh, there was a stream of gold that came out of this, but in this version of the story, the mercury doesn't say a thing. Mm. Right? There's mercury's just a wooden right, right. So whether mercury gave him the gold, whether the gold was hidden in this thing by somebody who sculpted it, uh, who knows? <laughs> and I think that's why there's no explicit moral, right? Is yeah. because. It's just a carpenter by himself. There really aren't two characters in this story. It's a man by himself experiencing hardship despite his belief and entreaties of a god and then having... The image of Mercury. Right. And then having coming upon a bounty after he has come to a place of frustration and defeat, essentially. So he's the one that decides his own moral, which is if I maltreat things, then maybe I'm going to get something from them. Yeah. That's not the only thing you could, you could, you could say, oh, well, if I'd gotten to know that image more, maybe I would have found something uh, special within it other than, and is, was that image ever anything than just a piece of wood in a piggy bank? Or, yeah. you know, I, all these questions emerge from it. It could even come back to the the Hercules and the Wagoneer story, where it's maybe if he had spent less time in treating Mercury, he wouldn't have fallen into a bad spot if he had been actively <laughs> out, you know, Indeed. trying to in, in, improve his own position. Good point. So it's fascinating. You know, it, there's no explicit moral. And you could, you could do a whole episode on just this fable, I think, because it's so ambiguous and it it's it appears to be um, sort of contradictory to it absolutely um, does what to the, what, tr- what most Aesop fables are trying to <laughs> portray um, in their in their morals. Mm-hmm. So really really fascinating one. Okay, the next one we have is um, Truth and the Traveler. Hmm. A wayfaring man traveling in the desert met a woman standing alone and terribly dejected. He inquired of her, "Who art thou?" 
My name is Truth, she replied. And for what cause, he asked, have you left the city to dwell alone here in the wilderness? She made answer, because in former times, falsehood was with few, but is now with all men. So this one, you know, rather than, okay, so the, the moral is falsehood is with all men. All right, just the last line. Um, to me, I think, <laughs> I think the moral is um, that we, you always think that your current time is the end times. <laughs> you always think that the spot that you're in is worse than the, than the past, right? Because think about it, at the time this was written, right, they're, they're saying then, Oh, well, you know, back in the good old days, only a few people lied, but now everybody lies. Well, that seems like the same thing we would say about people 50, 70, pick your number of years ago, Mm -hmm. right? I think the fact is falsehood has always been with some men, (laughs) you know, so it's, um, this one, uh, I'm not sure what the story was trying to convey to begin with. Well... I think it's conveying the very nostalgia that you're, I mean, I think, I think of a one moral, if there were to be a list of them and there should be, it, it shouldn't be just one, uh, is, is that, uh, people often think that their time is the worst. Hmm. Well, as you just said, I think that's, that's implied in there. Uh, secondarily, she's a woman named Truth. Uh, who are, how are you? My name is Truth. Okay. My name is Ruth. My name is Jane. My name is, okay. If we, if I, I I've looked at it from that view and uh, why are you uh, in former times false? Well, some people always think that, as you said, and so they walk away from the problem. Right now, 2022, I think absolutely pretty much we are dominated with falsehoods everywhere. Is it the only time it's happened in human history? No, but our capacity for communication has been able to eject truth out of the city. But but truth left the city. Mm. She wasn't banished in the story. And I think that's that's an essential difference. And interestingly, mine and yours are exactly this word for word the same huh. in this version. Yeah, I, I think that's the only version I could find. As, so so what cause have you left the city to dwell here? Uh, truth consciously decides to leave. Truth isn't trying to destroy the city. Truth isn't just trying to destroy the people. And truth is, truth is saying, you either recognize the truth or you don't. Hmm. These people don't want the truth. I've left. I think that's enormously powerful for right now. Yeah. We, we, we can't batter people into truth. We can't sermonize them into truth and, we- and that's very interesting amanda and i were having a, a discussion about this before the show um i had a enormous stack of national Ge- geographic magazines that had built up over the year mm. and then uh when school ended i've been gradually working my way through them and i finally got through them. Like, well you made your way all the way through the national geographic magazines so that's impressive I said, well, you know, it's uh it's mostly about the pictures. <laughs> I said, I like reading the articles, but um part of the problem is that um every article ends the same, right? Which is essentially um yes, here's a beautiful, magnificent thing and it's getting destroyed by climate change and soon will no longer be here. Yeah. That is the truth, right? 
And it's very important that the truth is told. But like you just said, battering people into the truth. Um, I think there comes a point, right, where with some of this, it it needs to be put out there, the damage that's being done by climate yes. change, the damage that's being done with by people. But at some point, it's overwhelming and and wearying to continually be confronted with this, right? And like you said, with truth, um, sermonizing, you can't sermonize, you can't batter because can't lecture. there's people that, you know, is if you've put the truth out there, there's going to be people that are going to acknowledge it and attempt to make changes and attempt to do the right thing. And there's going to be people that aren't going to believe it. Right. Yes. And so, you know, I think that with national geographic being my, my soapbox here, you know, whether it's you I'm watching a documentary, or I'm reading an article, you know, like I said, I think it's important to put it out there. Um, but I think that there needs to be some <laughs> relief from just that overwhelming sense of doom. Yes. Here's, here's the, here are the pictures. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting situation because it's a very, very difficult line to walk. I, I, I think of the, well, there was this movie recently, Don't Look yeah, or, yeah. or Look Up. Yeah. Right, right. And, but then uh, more than once, and just as an example in England, but it, it certainly documentably happened here too, there's a a newscaster was talk, or a meteorologist. Okay, now it's time for the weather. What's going on? We're going to have an extreme heat wave, and many people will die from it. Mm. He says, and the, the newscaster says, "Well, aren't you just a grim person today? You know, that's <laughs> there, there must be, come on. Let's lighten it up a little bit." He said, "There's no way to lighten this up." Yeah, you know, and so. <laughs> And then, and they say, oh, well, and they tease them and they go on, you know. Um, and so I think that the National Geographic says, well, if we don't keep hammering on this. Yeah. And I think that there's an, an important distinction between um, telling the truth and sermonizing, right? I, yes. I, the example I brought up on a, a couple occasions in the podcast was um, Thomas Jefferson's uh, house, right? Mm. I went to, uh, I visited it and they had, you know, a bunch of placards and a bunch of things explaining it. And, uh, you know, they just laid it out. You know, they just told the truth about, you know, the slaves and all the things. And um, never once did they say it was bad. Never once did they say it was good. They said, this is what happened, right? Same thing with the weatherman, right? The weatherman's not saying that it's a terrible thing that there's going to be this heat wave that's going to no. kill millions of people. He's not saying it's a good thing. He's just saying, this is what's people going to happen. going to die. Um and with, with National Geographic, right? I think yeah. I think in most cases they're just telling the truth, right? They're just laying out what's happening. But you were reading it cumulatively, and yes, so yeah, you yeah. Know. So over and over and over again, you get to the point where you're like, man, like I, I'm composting. You're, I'm, you're you know, preaching to the choir. Give me a break. <laughs> right. I can't do anymore. But yeah, so and I think you know when we look at this story of truth and we see her outside of the city, right? Outside yes. of human society, um, it makes you wonder why why she's out there right because you're right it doesn't say that she was thrown out um but maybe maybe that is part of it it could be part of the story right this this idea that being confronted with the truth constantly people just said you know what we can't put up with it anymore you gotta you gotta leave you gotta go out here right there was a character in greek mythology called cassandra sometime we'll talk about that i won't go into depth but uh Cassandra speaks the truth and pays a great 
punished price for it. Uh, and it's usually the women in these stories who speak the truth, hmm. interestingly. And, and she's standing there looking, just, she's not walking. She's not walking away from the city. She's perhaps in paralysis, perhaps in shock, but I don't think so. She's standing there looking dejected. She's a reminder. And if you want to stop and ask her what's wrong, you do. Uh, think of the, the, all the homeless people that we, we, we walk past. Hmm. We think, oh, we want to do good for homeless people, but here's a homeless person. Well, what do we do? Right. Well, here's a person who's looking really down. Do we stop and say, are you okay? Is there a way I can help? Or do we just go on past? I, it, it's more subtle, the story yeah. for me that way. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> So, if anything, these ASOS fables have been really good for inspiring future podcast ideas. <laughs> keep stumbling upon more and more Absolutely. things that would be interesting to talk about in the future. We always find interesting things. All right. So, our next one is our last Mercury story. Mercury and the Workman. Yep. Here we go. A workman felling wood by the side of a river let his axe drop by accident into a deep pool. Being thus deprived of the means of his livelihood, he sat down on the bank and lamented his hard fate. Mercury appeared and demanded the cause of his tears. After he told him his misfortune, Mercury plunged into the stream and, bringing up a golden axe, inquired if that were the one he had lost. On his saying that it was not his, Mercury disappeared beneath the water a second time and returned with a silver axe in his hand and again asked the workman if it were his. When the workman said it was not, he dived into the pool for the third time and brought up the axe that had been lost. The workman claimed it and expressed his joy at its recovery. Mercury, pleased with his honesty, gave him the golden and silver axes in addition to his own. The workman, on his return to his house, related to his companions all that had happened. One of them at once resolved to try and secure the same good fortune for himself. He ran to the river threw his axe on purpose into the pool at the same place and sat down on the bank to weep. Mercury appeared to him just as he hoped he would, and having learned the cause of his grief, plunged into the stream and brought up a golden axe, inquiring if he had lost it. The workman seized it greedily and declared that truly it was the very same axe that he had lost. Mercury, displeased at his knavery, not only took away the golden axe, but refused to recover for him the axe he had thrown into the pool. Hmm. <laughs> so we, we're seeing all aspects of Mercury in this story, the trickster, the commerce, the, the yeah, whole Yeah, thing. the whole package. <laughs> so the uh, the moral for this one is um, that honesty is the best policy, right? Yeah. So, um, and I think we've, everybody encounters situations like this in life, right? You, you come across or you see somebody drop a $50 bill or something. Um, you go, oh, it's $50, but hey, uh, you drop this, right? You give it back to them. Um, and this is one of those tales that is expressing something that is important for a functioning society, right? This, this idea of trust, you know, that, yeah. that it, you have people that are looking out for each other, even if they don't know each other, even if they, they don't have these, these sorts of things. So I, you can see the moral here that, that's, in, that the express moral that, that you would want to pass on to people. Yeah, I think so. It, it, you're right. It's about societal cohesion. It's about honesty, obviously. Uh, it's it is as you said the whole package with with mercury and it, it but it also has just a hint to me 
of some of the other tales we've talked about in which, I mean, the guy didn't dive into the pool. Right. I was a deep pool, but okay. Was he, he wasn't even going to try to look, was it too dangerous to go in? What, you know, hmm. what, what was, what was it about this pool that kept him from, or did he go to try to get help to no, now he's tired. Again, I think it's about the tired workman kind of thing. Um, he's he's ready to give up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, again, looking at this uh, this philosophical conundrum, right? So the first guy, um, we, we look at him as, as being admirable because he was, he was honest, right? So he was yeah. just happy that the God helped him out returning to him what he needed as Thankful a source of livelihood, as a source right. of livelihood, yeah. right? The second guy was just attempting to get a free gold axe. <laughs> <laughs> but think about it, right? So, if Mercury is just creating these axes, then what's the harm in seeking a gold axe? Right? <laughs> I read an interesting study the other uh, the other day talking about: um, Would you take a million dollars if it was offered to you, or? would you take a 50% chance of getting $50 million, right? <laughs> and I think that, so both of those, this concept, this question, and the story that you just relayed, are they're both about greed. It's like, there's the, that commerce aspect of Mercury. And with this, I, I didn't even bother reading this, this article because I thought to myself, a million dollars is so much money. Like, you know, they they talk about a bird in the hand. Even if it's a bird in the hand and fifty in the bush, we're talking a big <laughs> bird here, right? This bird can feed you for the rest of your life. So, you know, like how much more? Like as Americans, how much more do you need? You know, if I take that million dollars and I and I invest it, right? I, there's a very good chance I could live the rest of my life and not have to work or work part time, or you know, if I lived a modest lifestyle. Yeah. But this draw of well, well, there's uh, there's fifty million dollars, and I've I've got a I got a fifty fifty shot at getting it, and then I could really live like a rock star, right? It, it's a greed thing, and I think that that's that's the moral with this second guy, right? Is don't be greedy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. But what you said before about uh, I was trailing me some somewhere else. What you said about well, if Mercury can make the axes, <laughs> then why can't people have axes? And it, what that oddly took me to, perhaps oddly, is is during the pandemic, there was financial help that was given to many people. Hmm. It made the economy better. It made people's lives better. It helped a lot of kids. But suddenly, then uh, a certain element says, nope can't have that anymore you're not working hard enough for yourself so there's a mercury story of a different kind in there i'll give you a a, a silver axe one i'll give each of you a one silver axe do with it as you will but now i'm going to take it back because after all you should just be using the axe that you have and be and be grateful for it so there's a reverse <laughs> yeah a darker <laughs> yeah and that that whole thing. You know, all of the uh, the government stimulus during COVID was really uh, an interesting um, economic experiment. There's not there's not been anything like it. There really hasn't been anything um, since. But yeah, 
but then looking at, you know, there, there's because there's so many facets to it, right? Like we were talking about all of these stories and everything in philosophy. It's always much more complex. And that's that's why we've made a show out of this, right? <laughs> taking taking one word and then talking about it for an hour, because even one word is so complex, the concepts and the abstractions that surround it. Yes. That um and in one hour, even we can't talk about all of the things that it means or pertains to. Well, what do you how much and it's deep philosophical stuff how much do you need to thrive not to just get along that there's that's built into this story and it's not answered how much would you need and are you trained to say nope 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 only that is mine okay that's fine uh mercury is there to help this time will mercury be there to help again are uh, uh, our, our god's of any kind frivolous or capricious of it just the whole basket of questions flies out yeah yeah and i mean looking at the government stimulus and and like specifically ppp loans right who got them how much they got and all these different sorts of things and you see um elements that um really helped people that needed help and then you see elements where there was some corruption that took place right people taking things that they didn't even need and do and do we always then do we say well do we do we have the philosophical uh, not we you and me but, but collectively do we accept that there's always going to be an element of corruption if we accept that human beings are human beings we can't ignore that that's going to happen is a corruption of of such a small measure that that the overall benefit far outweighs the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few the the good of the many outweighs the corruption of the few or what variant do we take on that yeah i've been watching a, an interesting um show recently inventing anna so it's, it's a true story about um uh, a russian girl who pretended to be a german heiress who got into very elite circles in new york city politics and almost started a 40 million dollar foundation in the middle of new york city before they found out that she didn't have any money right mm-hmm. but the story is fascinating because it documents all of these rich, elite, highly educated people saying, no, she was the real deal. Like you could tell, you could tell she came from old money by her tastes and the way she acted and all of these things. And her ideas were amazing. She was a visionary. She was all this stuff, but she was really a fraud. But one of her lines really said something. And she said, I have done no crime that's even close to what any of these other people have done. Right. Because you know, she stole a lot of money, right? She pretended to be something that she wasn't. Um, but when you look at it, you know, she was a, a highly intelligent person with an eidetic memory and with these great ideas. The only thing that stopped her from achieving her ideas is that she was not born with large sums of money. And these people were, and they keep that within their own circle. Yep. And so, yeah, it raises these these questions about, well, hmm, you know, commerce and 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 how, you know, you think I think about that a lot. You know, how many what do we how many people? people are out there, right? How many poor people are out there that could really change the world and will never have the chance? And how many people are out there who can who can change a little bit of their world but have to wait for some capitalistic um, enactment to make it happen? Um, you know, we we have a we have a county fair once a year. And there's and my wife and I were talking about this today. So there's there's a situation where some kids will raise animals, and then they will uh, auction those animals for meat. And 
in that that brings in incredibly out, you know outrageously large compared to what the meat would actually sell for and or uh, <clears throat> a cake that somebody bakes and and it auctions for $1200 and 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 you and you can't stop you can't help but pause and say what are we teaching the the kids is it not enough to do the hard, good work to realize that you've raised an animal you're close to, but you're going to, it's going to be sacrificed and, and, and you'll receive a benefit from that that you can contribute to. But people need an excuse, a show in order to give money that otherwise they probably wouldn't have given. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so kids get paid a, a, a huge amount of money for something doing the same work. And if they're doing the same work a little bit later in life, they're going to be lucky to to get what they get. And somehow, what are we saying? Well, at the very beginning, it's great, and the rest of it isn't <laughs> in the process. And it's very troubling to me. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole, uh, again, Amanda and I were having a conversation yesterday about how, you know, the phrase, time is money, right? And again, a whole episode, a whole episode, I think. And Mercury is, statue is gold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, so um, next one we have is the Oaks and Jupiter. The Oaks presented a complaint to Jupiter, saying, We bear for no purpose the burden of life, as of all the trees that grow, we are the most continually in peril of the axe. <laughs> Jupiter made answer, You have only to thank yourselves for the misfortunes to which you are exposed. For if you did not make such excellent pillars and posts, and prove yourselves so serviceable to the carpenters and the farmers, the axe would not so frequently be laid to your roots. <laughs> And the moral here is men make their own fate. Um, <laughs> but oaks aren't men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and it doesn't apply to them. Right? <laughs> and so this is, it's kind of a disturbing story, right? The oaks have no control over how they grow or what, what they do. And, and, and in some ways, there's almost this uh, mirror of, there's almost a gender thing in here right there that is. you can see that you can say oh, i don't i don't like this story i don't like jupiter in this story at all what he's saying and what it, you know what the moral is look you don't have any choice as an oak now th- th- these stories are way before we know that things evolve mm-hmm. <laughs> but even so <laughs> if you're an oak you're an oak and so you know th- th- it's very disturbing it's very disturbing Oh, there are there are undertones of 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 classism, classism that is just really ugly, of of patriarchal, of men gods are in charge, and so you and then trying to say of a truth that has nothing to do with the truth because the oak doesn't stand for a person. We can understand that a fox might stand for a person or something, but. but there are a lot of tree stories in. We haven't gone to them. We we won't. But there in Aesop, there are many many stories about trees, uh, and to try to ascribe human characteristics to a tree is much more difficult. Yeah, and inaccurate. Yeah, yeah. You're, and, you're, and so when you do, that's when you it, you are starting to try to say, well, what what are we, what is the story saying, right? And so, in in this case, with Jupiter and the Oaks, the Oaks are saying, "Listen, we're constantly getting cut down. You know, help us out." And Jupiter is saying, "Well, it's your own fault if you did, if you didn't have such good wood, you didn't make such good pillars and stuff, you wouldn't get cut down." Well, the Oaks didn't have any choice in 
having good wood, no, right? it's our fault? Okay, so what's your purpose, Jupiter? If it's our fault and we're made this way, right. and and somebody created us, assuming assuming this in, in the scheme of the theological system, uh, oh, it, it's our fault for being how we are because uh, nothing made us this way. We, we just are as we are. It's very difficult. It's very disturbing. It's, it's removing any, it's, it, it is falsely and therefore troublingly and even evilly ascribing agency to something that has no agency. Right. Yeah. And this is where, you know, we've, we'll probably get into it next week, but we this, will. this idea of, um, the Aesop's fables being for children or, or for slaves and stuff, yes. you can see this as pertaining to slaves, right? Um, yeah. You know, saying, oh, you know, in an ugly, why, ugly way. Yeah, why, why do we have these living conditions? Well, you know, if you weren't, you know, of this race or this gender, or if you yeah. weren't conquered in battle, or if you weren't these things, then you wouldn't be in this situation, right? right? So just live with it until you don't anymore, because after all, we're the white patriarchal. <laughs> yeah, it's right. a, there's just no good sifting out of this yeah. one. Do you think that that was the intent from the beginning of the writing? For the intent uh, being for children or slaves, yeah, or or this or, specific story, right? Do you think that it was, it was meant? Do you think that that was the message? Is is that you know? Um, I have to think because I'm a, I'm still, despite everything, there's still elements of optimism left in me. I have to think that a storyteller who wrote this is being a trickster himself and testing the listeners. Because if a, if a if a group of listeners is saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, Jupiter's right," then you know the quality of the people that you're sitting among. Mm. And if you're telling a story to a group of people, okay, now I know what they want. There's the commerce aspect. I'm probably not going to hang around with them for a beer afterward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but I think that a good storyteller, uh, just like uh, equally a philosopher lobs in things that people don't know are being lobbed in. And if they start thinking about it, they may have doubts and they may start chewing on things. And that's what so Socrates always was attempting. And you know what? This is really interesting, right? Is that this whole story would take on a different tone if the appeal had been to Mercury instead of Jupiter. Because you could see it as being a trick, right? Yes, you could yes. see Mercury as a tongue-in-cheek saying, oh, well, it's your own fault, right? Yep. But the fact that it's Jupiter, the fact that it's the king of the gods makes you think, well, it, it leaves a, a different and notably worse taste in your mouth. It, it does, it, it for the reasons that you already said. Yeah, I, I, I think that the storyteller was saying, I'm going to give you something and it's not what you think. Hmm. Make of it what you will. Uh, if I want to tell you what the moral is, I, I will, but I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and Jupiter was as uh, you know, Jupiter was an imperialist. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So our last one, the man and the satyr. <laughs> yeah, I chose that one. <laughs> there are reasons. Anyway, uh, it, it, satyrs are are creatures that are primarily driven uh, by lust and drink. <laughs> a furry, woolly, animal-like, centaur-like creatures. Okay. okay. Um, 
a man and a satyr. It sounds like walk, walk into a bar. Uh, a man. <laughs> That's and a, probably where you could find one nowadays. Right. <laughs> <laughs> True. A man and a satyr once drank together in token of a bond of alliance being formed between them. Ah, here we go with alliances again. <laughs> one very cold, wintry day, as they talked, the man put his fingers to his mouth and blew on them. When the satyr asked the reason for this, he told them that he did it to warm his hands because they were so cold. Later on in the day, they sat down to eat, and the food prepared was quite scalding. The man raised one of his dishes a little towards his mouth and blew in it. When the satyr again inquired the reason, he said that he did it to cool the meat, which was too hot. I can no longer consider you as a friend, said the satyr, a fellow who, with the same breath, blows hot and cold. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can see that and, and i think that okay so the previous story right yeah. i think is disturbing and perhaps it was it was written in a disturbing fashion right yes. maybe maybe the initial intention behind it was was disturbing this story is equally um sort of nonsensical like you look at it and you're like oh okay well it's not that he's blowing hot or cold breath it's hot or cold things and and his moderate breath is what's bringing those things to moderate temperatures but i think that the fact that the person that he's drinking with right these the other character in the story is this lustful drunken yes yeah, are not moderate in any way right i think that then this one clearly seems to be tongue-in-cheek right they know that but the moral doesn't like the explicit moral that I found was maintain a single position. So the moral seems to back up the satyr, but I don't think that 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 doesn't seem to be the, the, no, the story. No, I don't think so. And once again, I, I'm. This is me. It's not the world of scholarship, but, uh, uh, but I am much more willing to say the storyteller is playing with us, and and trying to mislead us perhaps or trick us into thinking what's really going on here but it isn't what's really going on here because satyrs well look uh, we know lions don't talk and we know all of this stuff about the animals we've said that before but satyrs were in in heavily wooded areas uh, supposed to be um who were distant from most of humanity except that when they wanted to drink or carouse well, why is the man trying to form an alliance with a satyr? What's that about? I mean, there's not, it, this is not going to happen. Why would you, so what's the benefit for the two of them? And, and that's not explicitly stated, but one wants to wonder. And so philosophically, what, what would benefit a human and a, a satyr? Presumably the satyr might learn to mingle with humans out of moderation and complexity and the human what learns to drink better or crowds better? I don't. I don't. I know in some stories satyrs are, are stronger than than people. So a little superhuman thing going on. But, yeah, maybe it's like protection through woods. Uh, yeah, thug. There you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it's not. You have to always be consistent in your position. This itself challenges philosophy, which often asks us to try to be uh, consistent in the decisions we make ethically. But it doesn't always work. And to try to keep the same position throughout um, is to miss the complexities of situational ethics. Hmm. 
And so for me, this brings up the, yeah, the Seder is wrong. No, it's not teaching us to keep the same position. It's teaching us that sometimes you blow hot air. I'm known for that. And sometimes <laughs> cold. If anything, yeah, the moral is use the right tool for the right, the right job. job. Right. <laughs> you know, so he, he, the human has identified that, you know, doing this same thing in two opposite circumstances yeah. yields good results in both. I, I can't consider you as a friend anymore because I only do two things, and that's drink and carouse. And so, <laughs> again, really, really deep philosophical stuff. Um, I was this morning. I was reading an article. Um, about the James Webb Space Telescope, right? Huh, yeah. And how huh. some of the images, um, looking back towards the beginning of the universe, are causing, quote, panic among the scientific community because um, it's throwing the Big Bang hypothesis into question. Yes. Right? And so the two people that were interviewed in the article, one of them was a scientist and one of them was a philosopher. And it was very interesting, the two different viewpoints, right? The scientists said, I'm up until three in the morning wondering if everything that I've done has been wrong. Whereas the philosopher said, we may need to develop new physics and, you know, theories about how the universe works and it's, it's, you know, primary principles in order to understand it. Because philosophy, as we've said before, is the source of science. Science came from philosophy. Now, remember we were talking sometime back about a branch of a type of philosophy that actually is about sometimes can you find truth mm-hmm. and, and falsehood and, and error? Yeah, and this is the that's classic. The, the, yeah, this, it's this verisimilitude in action, right? It, it is verisimilitude in action, and and that's the important. That's that's the point of verisimilitude, is right? Is like okay, so what do we do? And I think in that episode, the example we used was COVID, right? So what do we do? If, if the science is changing, do we say that the scientists don't know what they're talking about? Or do we say that the scientists are operating on the best data that they have? And, and when new data comes in, you adjust for that and you, and you come to new conclusions. And what's interesting about it is even the scientist, right, falls into this sunk fallacy sort of um, Thing I, I'm up till three in the morning wondering if everything I've done is wrong. Death might as well come to me now. Right. Here I am. <laughs> yeah. No, no, give me my equations. Let me stay up till three in the yeah. morning and keep working. <laughs> you can transpose those things. <laughs> so it's just, again, it's this important, it's looking at that the philosophy of it and these little stories that have such big implications for how we view the world and how we view knowledge and how we make sense of all of these things Mm -hmm. so yeah next week we'll look at aesop as a whole and uh, we'll wrap it up and then after that episode 100 so until next time keep on